when you think about it, there's another way of thinking about it. It's where it's just what you talked about a few minutes, just a minute ago. Well, I get in my 50s, my 60s, my 70s. I think I'm old and I can't work out anymore. So I quit working out. Well, my muscles, you know, that's atrophy. You yes. know that space. Yes. And so um, then you go back and you think, well, what if instead of letting your mus muscles atrophy or shrink, mm -hmm. you continue to push them even into your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? And sure enough, that's where you, you can get growth. Growing old is not for sissies. You have to work to get there. <laughs> 10 times the number of women are dying from heart disease than from breast cancer. That is incredible to me, you know, to, to hear that. But why is it so prevalent in women? There's actually even more heart attacks that occur among women uh, than men. Believe it or not, people don't believe that either. Welcome to Body Sculpt of New York, six weeks to fitness podcast where we hope to inform, motivate, encourage, and inspire you to live a healthier lifestyle. And now, here's your host, the president of Body Sculpt of New York, Vince Ferguson. Hi, I'm Vince Ferguson. Welcome to Six Weeks of Fitness, episode 214. Thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. Ford Brewer is a board-certified preventive and occupational medicine specialist and a globally recognized speaker for organizations including the National Governors Association and the Brookings Institute. Amazing all by itself. But Dr. Brewer is also the founder of PrevMed Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention. And I'm very pleased to have him on my Six Weeks of Fitness podcast today. Dr. Brewer, how are you? I'm great, Vince. Thank you for having me. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, thank you for coming on the day before Thanksgiving. And so I'm giving thanks for having you today. <laughs> well, I'm thankful to be here. <laughs> but before we discuss the very important conference you have coming up next weekend, I want to find out more about you. What led you to become a medical doctor? Well, it was uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, and it just gets back to some personal reasons. I grew up in the Deep South. I used to live in New York. You're in New York City now, right? Yes. I lived uh, in New York for about eight years and loved it there. But I grew up, you may, be, you may recognize a little bit of an accent here. I do, I do. It was far, far worse when I first moved to New York because I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, the foothills down in, in the land of sweet tea and blackberry <laughs> cup ice cream on it. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> You, religion's a big thing down here. I grew up Southern Baptist, went to the Baptist College at Charleston. And, you know, when you get to be a teenager, about halfway through high school, sometimes you start feeling like, well, what am I going to do for my life? And I decided I was going to just do, you know, whatever I could. Um, I was very fortunate, and I just wanted to see if I could do something to help other people. And it was interesting, about that time, the Medical University of South Carolina came through. Uh, there was a jobs fair. And at that time, this is, I'm very old. I'm 66. So this was over 30 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. The, uh, in South Carolina, they were afraid they weren't going to have enough primary care doctors. So they had this special program where you could actually get admitted to med school out of high school. Nice. And I interviewed for that and was fortunate to get in. And so then when I started, it was like, hmm, what do I do next? So <laughs> there you go. That's that's how I got started in med school. <laughs> so you got in, but you said, what do I do? Now that I got in, what do I do next? <laughs> but now you started focusing on, what was it, um, surgery? Was it ER? What was your... your um, your expertise at that time? Well, it was interesting. Uh, when I got in, I expected the major focus to be keeping people healthy. Okay. Mm -mm, not at all. Everybody was into their own little specialty area, and very few people actually thought about the numbers, the statistics, hmm. what actually kept people healthy. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, doctors are usually not very good at statistics. They think they are. And unfortunately, a lot of their patients think they are, but they're not. Huh. 
So um, <clears throat> and surgeons get really interested in doing their surgery. Once you start getting deeper into looking at it, by the time it, you somebody gets to a, needing a surgery, quite often it's the damage has been done. Yes. And so that's what struck me, left me convicted that procedures were not the not the way to go. They were the way to make money. Oh, you could make a lot more money as a doctor that way. Yes. But they were not really the way to save lives. You know, the the higher the level of surgery, the worse it was. So neurosurgeons, for example, I mean, it's known to be a very depressing specialty. You know, there have been several books written about it where people are just in really bad shape by the time they get to the neurosurgeon. Hmm. So <clears throat> I got a little bit confused about that. The other thing that got me confused in medical school was the fact that um, it was sort of like what we called Betty Crocker medicine. And what I mean by that was some doc somewhere long, long ago decided he or she thought they knew what we should do for medicine. And they created their little recipe and lists <laughs> and all the other doctors followed them along and just did what was on the recipe. <laughs> well, there was very little effort looking at what really helps the patient, what keeps the patient well, keeps the patient from getting sick. So <clears throat> I went on, I, I trained at, uh, at the MedU of South Carolina, went to Charity Hospital after that for my internship, uh, the Big Free uh, Charity yes. in New Orleans. Yes. And when I was there, they had a strong program in public health at Tulane. And I began to look and see what they were doing. And it intrigued me. They actually looked at the evidence. Hmm. And that's important. You know, what's helping people, not what's helping your doctor's pocketbook. Right. And, so, and I hate to sound so cynical, but there's too much of that there. Um, so then I began to look and got really interested in public health. Then I found, well, there's a group, there's a group, there's a specialty called preventive medicine. I became very interested in that. I went to a place you may have heard of called Johns Hopkins. Of course, yes. <laughs> I, uh, I did a specialty training in preventive medicine there, loved it went on to become an epidemiologist and went on to run the program in preventive medicine there, training other doctors on how to do prevention. Hmm. So I haven't looked back. I've uh, had a blast ever since. Hmm. Wow, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing, especially because you're focusing on prevention, you know? And yep. so many people focus on, as you said, after effect, the treatment, all this, the surgery, but what if you can help prevent these diseases from actually happening? That's amazing, you know, it really truly is. And let's talk about that because there seems to be a lot of information out there today about obesity, about diabetes, about dementia and heart disease, but the rates are continuing to rise. Yes. Why is that? It's very sad. And, you know, we go back, everybody wants to get mad these days in, uh, in the era of social media. And I know you, all you have to do is say COVID and people get mad. But the real pandemic, even during the COVID era, heart disease, cardiovascular disease was killing more people than COVID was, all except one or two weeks during the pandemic. And that would be using totally unquestioned numbers from the government. And, you know, everybody says, well, those numbers were too inflated. Not going to go down that bunny hole. But <laughs> the point here is we've had a pandemic of heart attack and stroke and Alzheimer's going on for decades, and nobody is questioning it. We just think it's normal hmm. to be walking down the street, have a heart attack, and die mm. in your 60s. And that's not normal. It doesn't have to happen. We think it's normal to uh, for grandpa to have diabetes. Yes, yes. We think it's normal for uh, Aunt Sue to be on uh, dialysis for her kidney disease, which was from diabetes. 
Yes. And the blindness, by the way, was from diabetes. And if you're hearing something over and over again, and it sounds like diabetes, yes, here's what's going on. We've got a pandemic of, of prediabetes and diabetes. It's the same disease. It's just worse once you hit that, that diagnosis of full-blown diabetes. Hmm. When If you go to the doc and your doctor tells you or a family member, ah, you got a touch of sugar, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. And here's why. It's not because I'm thinking that maybe you've got a touch of sugar. It's because I know how well doctors diagnose and manage prediabetes. They don't. Hmm. Uh, some of my old uh, associates at Hopkins first started documenting this, and then it became documented at Harvard and Mayo. Three quarters of the doctors, I'm talking about primary care doctors here in the US, internists, family practitioners, even cardiologists, because they play a role in primary care for their patients. Three quarters of them don't know how to diagnose prediabetes. That's not me complaining uh, in an interview or me talking or being social with somebody. That is numbers that come straight out of the, the evidence, the literature. So guess what? It's called Knowledge, Attitude, and Practices, KAP surveys, done by these, you know, again, Hopkins, Harvard, other places. And so guess what? So when they realize that doctors don't know how to diagnose prediabetes, then they start asking, well, how do you manage it? And again, yeah. you can imagine, if yeah. you don't know how to diagnose something, how are you gonna manage it? Can't, right. So here we go. We've got the obesity epidemic going on. We've got uh, a world where um, most of our, so much of our food, most of our processed food is pumped full of um, uh, high fructose corn syrup. Right. We've got teenagers now that are getting type two diabetes because of that. And then we've got a medical community that doesn't know how to diagnose it or manage it. So what do we do? We slow down, we take our pulse, hmm. we assess the situation. Yes, yes. And, and here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> what most people don't know, you, you know, we talked about obesity and the obesity epidemic, right. probably driving some of this. And that's true. Right. We also, something we haven't mentioned is genetics. You know, you can't change your genetics. And there's a third thing that causes diabetes. So obesity, genetics, but the biggest thing, despite all the other stuff you see in the obesity pandemic, mm -hmm. is aging. Aging is the most powerful force for our body to lose its ability to burn carbs. Hmm. What's, what's both frustrating for somebody like me, but a, is is the size of the opportunity that we have here. If people will slow down, begin to assess their own body's ability to metabolize carbs, and then, then only eat what you can healthily eat. Think about it. There was a, there was a couple of articles in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the AMA uh, right. network, about two years ago showing that by the time we're age 30, over half of us have this problem. Metabolizing? Can't metabolize carbs. The age of 30? By the time of age 30. So we think we're young and healthy in our 30s, right? Oh, unbeatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just full of ourselves. We're going to live forever, and we got no health problems. Thank you. Yes, not so. Think again. Again, slow down, take a look, see if you've got any signs or any evidence of prediabetes. Now, how do you do that? Right. Your typical doctor thinks that you should just do an A1C, a hemoglobin A1C. And here's the problem with that. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists has said, mm, that's not really a good test for this. And here's why. 
So number one, it's a hemoglobin test. So think about all the things that can impact hemoglobin. Uh, there, there's a genetic thing that we call hemoglobinopathies. They tend to have happened to help us as a human race ward off malaria, things like beta thalassemia, sickle trait, sickle uh, cell, um, those things. Then you have um, diseases of the pancreas, I mean, of, of the liver and the kidney that can decrease your hemoglobin. That often causes problems with hemoglobin A1C. There's a very common condition that we wouldn't call an illness, but it impacts A1C, and it's called pregnancy. Really? Yeah. But I can tell you in my practice, I do this all day, every day, help people find that suspect they may have a problem yes. and help them find and confirm whether they do or not. And by far, the most common thing is they're eating a low-carb diet. So if you're eating a low-carb diet, your A1C is going to be very low because you're never eating the carbs. Right. I had a patient come today. Actually, he's from New York. Oh, and he was very upset. He's got a doctorate in healthcare. He's in the healthcare in, uh, industry space. Yes. And he's really upset because um, he didn't know that he had diabetes. We did this test. Uh, it's called an OGT. It's a glucose tolerance test. It's to just stress your body a little bit. What we do is we give you the amount of sugar that's equal to a large Coke at McDonald's. Hmm. A large Coke at McDonald's. And if your blood sugar goes over 150, 140, 150, we know that you've got some pro probability of having some prediabetes. If it goes over 200, you've got full diabetes. You meet that criteria. And this doctor from New York, uh, we're reviewing his numbers today. He got up to like 230. Really? really? And had no clue. So it, I mean, so that tells you a few things. Number one, um, it's happening all over. Number two, the medical community is not ready to provide leadership to us in this space. They don't look for it. They, we don't, they don't think about it. Yes even among themselves. I've got a lot of doctors and dentists and other healthcare people as my patients, just because they're beginning to get aware of this issue. Hmm. But if doctors aren't prepared to lead the way, who will do it? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm doing all I can. <laughs> I it, yes, yes, exactly. Which is why what you're doing in another week or so is so important. But you know, I read part of your media advisory and I, I read something that really caught my attention. It said that cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease causes 10 times more fatalities in women than breast cancer. Yes. Is that well, true? I couldn't believe story, it. Yeah, you're not alone. Oh, Most sure. people feel that way. And that's why we put that statistic in there. Most people, women included, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the Susan G. Komen Foundation, the pink ribbon, the, right. I really want to raise awareness, but they've done such a good job for awareness of breast cancer in women. Yes. That, and the heart disease folks just maybe haven't done so good. And Not like you said- 10 times the number of women are dying from heart disease than from breast cancer. That is incredible to me, you know, that, to hear that. But why is it so prevalent in women? There's actually even more heart attacks that occur among women uh, than men. Believe it or not, people don't believe that either. There's a few things that are unique about what's going on with women that make it more difficult. First of all, when you look at men and women, women tend to have their heart attacks in their 70s, whereas men tend to have theirs in their 50s and 60s. Hmm. So they, oh. you know, men get men and their heart attacks get more attention. 
The second thing is, if you actually look at, and they've done, they've looked at data on this as well. Um, when women go into the ER with uh, heart attacks, they tend to, it, they tend to get missed. They tend to get sent home when they have a heart attack more than men. There's a couple of reasons for it. One of them is the, the thing that you and I just talked about and that you brought up. Women are have far more heart attacks than people think. But there's another thing about women and their hearts that's very unique. They don't have the classic symptoms nearly as much as men. You know, there's an elephant sitting on my chest. Right. It's right here. It's going down my arm. No, uh, uh, women will often come in and say, you know, I just feel sweaty all the time. I'm just sweating for the past two or three days. That's it. Huh. Or, you know, I feel like I'm having my period. I just, I feel kind of funny. Or I'm just feeling like I'm under a lot of stress. And so they get these things that they get diagnosed as a, a mental health, you know, it must be an anxiety. It must be that you're upset. And meanwhile, she's having a heart attack. Huh. Unbelievable. That's one of the signs. It really is. One of the signs. So we, one of the jobs, uh, Jeannie in our, uh, in our group is going to be presenting uh, some things about women's heart attack and heart health. And hey, be aware. Don't, uh, uh, don't think that just because you're having a little bit of sweats that it's, you know, yeah. that could be a heart attack. It's good to know. Uh, what about stress? What role does stress play? You know, it's interesting. I've talked to um, endocrinologists, you know, doctors that focus on on hormones, about, you know, those are the specialists in insulin, diabetes. And I've, had, I've met some that feel like, you know what, uh, High blood sugar is really just the accumulation of stress. Now, why would they think that? Well, stress causes, you know, the fight or flight hormones, epinephrine, but it also causes a, a hormone called cortisol. cortisol. You ever heard of it? Oh, most definitely. Yes. Yeah. So it's like you get bathed in cortisol every time uh, something happens that increases stress and you're thinking, hmm. Well, there goes a little bit more blood sugar and a little bit more blood sugar. Now, the evidence, when you start going back and looking at what we call epidemiology, you know, the study of the of um, disease and how it transmits, the evidence is not that nearly that dire. Yes, stress is a big issue. Yes, you need to manage it. But there's some things that you need to think about more and the priorities that you need to set. Number one, uh, as we said, there's three big risk factors. Aging, which you can't change. Can't change aging. <laughs> genetics, you can't change. change but body composition, we talked about it a couple of times. You know, we used to think that body fat mm -hmm. was just a an inert, harmless, you know, except for appearance, energy storage tissue. Right. But that's not the case. It's a hormone tissue. It creates hormones. It creates one called leptin, which controls how much we want to eat. Mm -hmm. It's called the satiety hormone. In right. other words, I feel fine now. I'm full. I don't want any more. Yes. When, when fat cells grow a little bit too, too big, they lose their ability to create leptin. Mm. So you don't feel full anymore. Right. Continue to eat. <laughs> now, there's another type of uh, obesity related to this where people have plenty of leptin, but they're immune to it. They're resistant to it, even though their leptin's going up. So one of the big things is you lose your ability feel, to feel like I'm full, I'm satisfied, I don't need more food. Mm. There's another hormone that that's that the fat tissue makes it's called resistin and it makes your insulin receptors your cells in your muscles and your liver resist insulin oh 
And so it creates, and, and that grows when your uh, when your fat cells grow, that resistance increases. So mm. your fat cells grow, you, the resistance increases, you start getting insulin resistant. The leptin decreases, you never feel uh, satisfied or full. And then there's another one called adiponectin. And it's, ba and it's based on some old Latin medical words, adipose, meaning fat. But adiponectin is an ins insulin sensitivity hormone. So it makes those same receptors in your, in your muscle and your liver that are supposed to pull blood sugar in. Yeah. Those cells pull sugar out of your blood and into the liver or muscle where it's safe. Hmm. When these fat cells grow, they stop making adiponectin. So they grow, they stop making leptin, you 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 don't get satisfied anymore. You want to eat more and more and more. Mm. They stop making adiponectin, so your insulin si sensitivity drops. They start making resistant, so your insulin resistance just goes way up. So the most important thing that you can do is lifestyle. And the most important thing you can do is manage that, um, your body composition. So we've realized that if you can decrease and manage that fat, mm -hmm. that's critical to this process. Okay. And how do you recommend, because I know on your website, you have a prevention method that mm -hmm. you believe can help people to extend their years, decades, once you go through your process. What process is that, doctor, that you have? Well, it's one of the things is it's based on getting me out of the way. Me? Now, what are, me, oh, the me. doctor. The doctor. And let me okay. tell you what that means. <laughs> you know, you typically go to a doctor. The doctor, you, you wait for a while. The doctor walks in, looks at the chart for about five minutes, tells you what he or she thinks, pats you on the back and walks, writes a script and walks out. Well, that's not the way it works with us. We get labs. We get this OGTT, the glucose tolerance test I mentioned earlier. Right. We look at what's called fractionation tests, which tell you your body's now talking to you. Your body's saying, yes, I can I can go this far with this much carbs. I can't go any further. It's telling you, I'm already, um, you know, when you look at the lipid tests, we don't just look at the regular cholesterol tests. We look at cholesterol tests that show you we're burning cholesterol differently because of the, um, the carb problem that you're having. As we get into this carb problem, we start burning cholesterol very, very differently. So we actually, we have a, a term and it's, Test, don't guess. Hmm. Test, don't guess. So it's one thing to go into the doctor and the doctor says, oh, I think you need to lose weight. Well, okay, you know, he is who he is and he thinks what he thinks. But when you start looking at your own body saying, here, I can't manage, I'm starting to, to build up triglycerides and I'm putting them in my liver. I'm putting them in your kidneys. I'm putting them in your eyeballs. I'm putting them in your... Um, now I'm even storing them in your lipids, your cholesterol particles. Once you start seeing that, then it starts to become a very different thing. You start to realize that this is not some doctors with a toss-off opinion. This is my body showing me exactly what's going on inside. Yes. Yes. What do we do about it, though, doctor? It's, you know... We, we prescribe prescriptions. You know, there's a lot of things like metformin and the new medications. And medications are great. But at the end of the day, lifestyle is critical. Lifestyle changes. Yeah. And it's body composition. You know, we talked about body fat, but we didn't talk about uh, muscle. Muscle, yes. Muscle is our best safety valve to keep us from getting into this problem. If we have insulin resistance, muscles that are active, that are metabolically, you know, they got a lot of what we call mitochondria, the furnace of the cell. Energy. When yeah. you got muscles like that, they'll just pull that sugar out of the blood and bypass these ailing insulin receptors. So hmm. the more you can do to think about, okay, what gets me in good shape? 
And a lot of people think, oh, well, that means you want me to go run four miles. No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, they've done a lot of studies on that. Mayo up in uh, um, Minnesota did some really good, interesting studies looking at the actual mitochondria and uh, 20 and 30 somethings, 50 somethings, and 70 and 80 somethings, you know, people of those ages. Yes. And they did three types of workout. They did the old aerobic, you know, run slowly for multiple miles. Then they did high intensity interval work. Yes. And then they did resistance training. Hmm. So, yeah, the aerobics helped a little bit, yes. but by far the most effective was the HIIT training, high intensity high interval intensity. work. Really? And resistance training was a close second. So one of the key things that we do is start educating our patients about, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to be doing differently. Even when from the old health nut days, we used to say, don't eat any fats and go out and run four miles. <laughs> and mm, the problem is maybe a little bit different than we thought. And there's some very different kind of things. Number one, if you're like 90% of us and you can't metabolize all those carbs, you should rethink uh, fats and oils. Those are probably better for you. And eating a lot of carbs is going to stimulate your insulin yes. and decrease your ability to burn fat again. Right. So change your diet, adjust, know what you can metabolize safely. Know if you've got this public health problem, this prediabetes, diabetes. If you do, then manage it differently. And instead of just going out and spending hours running around you know, around the neighborhood, do some intensity work, do some resistance training mm -hmm. and uh, do some high, high intensity interval training. And don't just work on your arms. You know, the arms are great, but right. they're really more, in our world and what we're doing, they're more cosmetic than anything else. Hmm. It's the muscles of the leg, the hips, the thighs, you know, you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's got huge biceps. Right. But where's his real muscle mass? Legs. It's in his thighs, his thighs, his calves, his hips. Right. And the reason that's important is because we want to use that muscle mass as that safety valve to pull that blood, that blood sugar when it's high back out of the blood and into the muscle where it's safe. Nice. That's awesome. Great. Great advice, and I, I believe in it tremendously because in my world of fitness, we talk about strength training, high-intensity interval training. So it's good to hear from you that this is one of the best types of exercises we can do to actually pull that that uh, that, that sugar out of the, out of the out into, into the muscle. So I definitely would like to share that to more people to let them know this is what you need to do because this is a major problem today. I mean, on a major scale, you know? It's the number one cause of death. Oh, unbelievable. And what you do- the number one cause of disability. Hmm. But most people believe, as you said earlier, once you get to your 50s, 60s, I always hear, well, I'm old now. I can't, you know, I can't do what I used to do. So I'm going to sit down and watch TV and just drink loads of Coke all day. I mean, people give up. They say, what's the, what's the sense? I'm 55, 60, what's the point? And they just give up and they get fatter and they get sick and they expect to get sick because they are getting older. How do you change that? <laughs> you know, I used to have a coffee table book with a lot of pictures. It was called Growing Old. It, the title was Growing Old is Not for Sissies. <laughs> and it was, it was like this 80-year-old woman who took up powerlifting in her 70s. Wow. And, you know, another 80-year-old uh, woman who started swim, swimming and in their 60s and swam the English Channel. You remember that that Mayo <laughs> Clinic uh, article that I talked about where they showed that resistance training and interval training was better? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So you remember I said they did the 80-somethings and the 50-somethings and the 20 and 30-somethings? Right. Guess who grew the most mitochondria? I would think the younger ones because of we the, would all think that. Sure. You know where I'm going with this. I know where you're going. They, they, really? They grew the most mitochondria. And, you know, when you think about it, there's another way of thinking about it. It's where it's just what you talked about a few minutes, just a minute ago. 
well, I get in my 50s, my 60s, my 70s. I think I'm old and I can't work out anymore. So I quit working out. Well, my muscles, you know, that's atrophy. You yes. know that space. Yes. And so um, then you go back and you think, well, what if instead of letting your mus muscles atrophy or shrink, mm -hmm. you continue to push them even into your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? And sure enough, that's where you, you can get growth. Growing old's not for sissies. You have to work to get there. I'm but, just gonna write that down. I'm gonna use that. Growing old is not for sissies. That's right. The next class, we'll talk about that. I'm there sure. you go. <laughs> well, this is great. But look, I, I can speak, speak to you and listen to you for hours, Doc, but I wanna know more about the upcoming event. Talk about that. Okay. So people, people think it's a conference. And we don't know really what else to call it, but it's not really a conference. Yes, you can get a couple of days of really intense focus on the kind of stuff that we're talking about tonight. Right. But it's really a lot more. Have you ever heard of a, a pop-up restaurant? A pop-up restaurant? It's like a restaurant that, you know, it's in a... a a built an empty building and some and a restaurateur oh. decides he's going to go in and just for the weekend yes. do a pop-up restaurant yes this is like a pop-up clinic huh. go in uh <laughs> you get a thing called an ultrasound of the the arteries of the neck to say if you have plaque or not and if you do have plaque is it dangerous and soft plaque you get your labs before you come down you bring them with you you get a full evaluation of, okay, this is what uh, is going on with my labs. And this is what an OGTT means. This is how you interpret it. This is how you interpret an insulin survey. This is how you interpret those, uh, those cholesterol tests that I talked about earlier. Right. And then you get two days of that. And then you get to uh, part of that two days is, okay, so I know what my unique my internal metabolism is telling me. I know that, okay, I do have diabetes. Here are the things that I need to do, or I've got prediabetes. And, you know, you remember the numbers. Yes. By the time we're 30, half of us have this. Huh. Yeah. And most of the people attending are going to be in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, and 70s. Mm -hmm. So my, the majority of these people are going to have it. But yes. the only thing that separates them from... Uh, the same number of people their age out on the street is that they know they've got it. They know. And they're pushing back. Yes. And they're going to live another healthy decade or three. Nice, nice. There's nothing like knowing, you know? You know, it's like Jack the Ripper's walking behind you, and all you have to do is know about it, call the police and do the work, and he he's out of there. Exactly. There's such an opportunity to improve our health. All we got to do is look. Oh, now this is great. Are there any other other events like this taking place? I've never heard of one like this where you can actually. <laughs> Not right now. Uh, we are considering uh, doing others. We haven't made a decision yet whether or not we will. Mm, okay. I will tell you this. There's a lot of people that are coming. Uh, it's been, we've had a couple of those. We had a, we had a couple of very small ones uh, in Orlando five, six years ago. Um, we had one planned in Ohio in March of 2020. You may remember that date that, and that time period. That's when the whole world shut down. Oh, yes. Oh, so um, we got wrapped up and busy with a lot of growth and other things, and we've just not done it until now and so we've had a lot more uh growth a lot more interest and a lot more participation than we've ever had we've we've trained uh folks to help us we're coming down there with a full team now and um we're excited about what we're going to be able to do for the folks that are there yes. and we're getting a lot of uh requests to have some elsewhere we'll just see how this one goes okay so this would be the the inaugural, the test run, if it does well, then you expand it. I'm sure you'll be able to pull in sponsors as well for an event like this. You we know? hope so. We've, we have a few sponsors already. 
You do, but you probably uh, have more based on the, su the success of this one. But what you're doing is so important. And and I want to definitely do my part to share the, the information because hopefully you'll do more. So after this one, you have it in other cities, you know, and that would be that would be great. I would love nothing more than to come have one in New York. I would love nothing more than to promote you and meet you and, and be there myself and bring a team of people there. Because I know a lot of people that can use this service and they would love to be there, you know, really do. But I have another, well, maybe two quick questions. Because again, I've been to your site and I noticed that you have courses online that people can take to learn yeah. about the heart. I mean, that to me is golden. That's amazing. How's that well, thank you. That was yeah. one of the first things that we did. I started, you know, given what I do, I get access to a lot of training programs. And I was sitting in a training program on, over the weekend about 10 years ago. And it occurred to me that we had this new media called YouTube and it was free. But there were probably a lot of people that would love to learn what I was learning, but didn't want to pay two or three thousand dollars to do it. Right. And so uh, it was all public information. It's, you know, you just got to know what to look for and where. And so I started do, just doing a trial. My first videos were really ugly, really bad. Oh, really? But, <laughs> but the information was there and people recognized it. Yes. And they still give me a hard time because my first videos, I just print off a picture and start pointing and talking like that. And they called it the old <laughs> shaky paper days <laughs> we, we we've upgraded a little bit from there but, yeah, bet. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and what has happened is we've grown we've got uh, about 180,000 subscribers to the channel now amazing, um, amazing. We, it's interesting we've got we had a lot of growth over the past six months and here the the typical patient will come in and say well you know, we'll see plaque, but then we'll do plaque, cardiovascular plaque in their arteries when we do that ultrasound, the CIMT. Right. But it'll be stable, not not unstable, not soft. And we'll do the OGTT quite often, and it doesn't look bad. And I look at them and I say, wonder what's going on? And now, because of the channel, I've learned to ask the question, have you lost a lot of weight? Oh, yeah, I lost 30 pounds. I lost 50 pounds. Hmm. I had a fellow a few months ago. Oh, yeah, I lost 160 pounds. And wow. it's like, whoa. And the, and the next thing I usually hear is, so how did you do that? Well, I started watching your channel. And then I decided, well, maybe I should drop my carbs. Hmm. And my diet, my hunger just fell out. I quit being so hungry. And then I decided to do what's what they call intermittent fasting. Yes. For, for technically, it's called time restricted eating, and technically, yes. you should just eat like, uh, you know, maybe breakfast and lunch. But socially, people have a hard time with that. Most people just say, "Okay, I'm just going to skip breakfast." Some people go to a full every other day fast. Yes. You know, people these people that need to lose fifty to a hundred pounds. They'll do, go on an every other day fast, and it tends to be very effective, especially when they uh, cut their carbs to to help that. Yes. And so it's like, I'll say, well, you know, you've saved your life. And they'll say, yep, and you helped me do it. Thanks and that's you. my point. It's very, very rewarding. Uh, many more people than come into the clinic have seen the channel, have seen the the free information, have taken the information the initiative to to follow it to start getting healthy yes and it saved their lives wow the work that you're doing is really as they say god's work because <laughs> you're helping humanity man and yeah. you mentioned intermittent fasting i'm such a believer in that and i've seen it firsthand i've, I've done it and um have you mentioned it just says, says a lot about you and what you're what you're doing you know because i'm a firm believer in intermittent fasting it can really help people one last question. The holidays are coming. We're here. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Tomorrow. Tomorrow it starts. You, exactly. So what advice would you give my audience to kind of to stay on track for this whole to doing the holiday season? Well, you know, number one, um, 
as you can tell, I, a major part of what I run is a weight loss clinic. Just by, it's not what we booked it to be. It's right, but it's what it turns out to be. Turns out to be, yeah. And so I work with people that are losing weight and managing their weight on a daily basis. And I've been that same. I've been down that same path. I used to weigh thirty pounds. Thirty pounds more when I was in college. I start my blood pressure started going up. I had to start making some adjustments and lost 30 pounds. My blood pressure came back to where it needed to be. Nice, and nice. my health was fine until, um, uh, you know, a few years ago when uh, A, I gained a little bit of weight and B, started getting older again. Right, again. <laughs> yeah. I started getting older. Um, and started looking at, okay, I need to lose a few pounds, dropped the carbs, started uh, getting a little bit healthier, increased my resistance training, increased my intensity training. I used to be a long distance runner, you know, weekend marathoner, uh, ultra marathoner. Those are great, but they don't have quite the impact that the HIIT training and the resistance training. Yes. So those are the th some of the things that you need to do to... Uh, to make those changes. Now, what do you do during the holidays? You know, you're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving and Christmas. One of the things to uh, think about is the calorie density of the foods and, and most importantly, the carb density. So if you are pre-diabetic or diabetic, um, eating those carbs is very likely to cause your blood sugar to go up. When your blood sugar goes up, your insulin's going to go up, and you're just going to be cranking as long as your blood sugar's up and making it harder for you to burn the fats. So one thing to think about doing is, okay, and here's what I do. A lot of our folks do this. They'll say, okay, I'm going to go a little bit heavy on the salad. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, eat some turkey if you're into turkey or something like that. Um Go slow on that gravy that's full of flour or cornstarch. Go slow on those rolls, those big sources of carbs. You know, try to keep it more foods that that are a little bit not going to challenge your pancreas and your ailing insulin receptors quite so much. Hmm. Then your body is able to work through that. Another thing to think about is, you know, it, we've sort of been trained that we want to feel full. Well, you know, the stomach will stretch. And if you want to feel full every time you finish eating, your stomach's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what happens to a lot of most of us still as we age. Yeah. So rethink this this habit, this tradition of, oh, I want to feel really full and pat myself on the belly. Yeah. Mm, no, you don't. You don't. I mean, you can, but that comes at a major cost in terms of your health. So just some real simple things like that. Another thing is to slow down with the eating. I come from a family with bad, bad juju, bad, uh, bad behavior around food. My dad was my height. At one point in time, he was over 350 pounds. Wow, really? so I learned some bad stuff about how to eat. Yes. From one of them is I eat way too fast. Another mm. is I have a carb addiction, I, you know, a sweets addiction. I just love sweets. So I have to backpedal. And sometimes it just turns into a little bit of, I got to have discipline. Right. Okay. Now, one thing they're finding is they're getting deeper and deeper into and more and more effective at managing obesity. A lot of us, especially the authoritarian types, come at it and they say, it's all discipline. You yeah. can control this, yada, yada, yada. Yes. That's not true. You know, there's <laughs> hormones involved in here and hormones are, you yeah. know, it's sort of like telling uh, a teenage boy and girl, it's all discipline. You two need to not be kissing on each other. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, how, how long is that? Good luck on that. Um, so think about it. Re realize that there are biological drivers here. Discipline's important. Yes. Those biological drivers are important. You need to know what's going on inside your body and start using the information you have yes. to change your lifestyle because that's going to be much more effective than anything else you can do. Mm. 
Good advice. Good on. I love it. I love it. Doctor, this has been great. But how can my viewers and listeners find out more about you and the upcoming event? Oh, I appreciate you asking. It's Ford like the car, Brewer like Milwaukee. Mm. F-O-R-D, Brewer, Ford Brewer. And if they just look up my name, they'll start seeing um, the references to the YouTube channel. It's big enough now to where uh, you look, you do a YouTube search and you'll see plenty of my stuff. Yeah. Once you do that, you, that can lead you to our website. And the, the website is prevmedhealth.com. Or maybe it's prevmed.health. I'll have to go check and, and Yeah, prevmedhealth.com. Prevmedhealth.com. <laughs> Yeah, it's an awesome website, man. You have a lot of information and you're a YouTube star, man. You know, I look up to you, you know. Well, I appreciate that. This is great. But look, again, this has been wonderful. I, on behalf of my organization, Body Scope of New York and Six Weeks of Fitness Doctor, I really want to thank you for coming <clears throat> on my show today. I really want to thank you for coming on my show today. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. And to my listeners and viewers, I hope this program was encouraging and inspiring and that you will continue tuning in to my Six Weeks of Fitness podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please leave them in the comment section below or email me at vince at sixweeks.com. And please don't forget to subscribe so you, so you don't miss any future episodes. And remember, we don't stop exercising because we grow old. We grow old because we stop exercising. I love that. Absolutely. I thought you would like that, Doc. <laughs>